Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Although today you've just got Kirk. So even though it's called Kirk and John, today it's going to be called Legal Defense with Kirk. And I'm Kirk O'Bear. John is in the middle of prepping for a very uh, complicated trial. Uh, I'm going to be helping him with that a little bit later today as we collaborate on a lot of our cases, most of our cases, actually. But a couple things I want to talk about this week. First, I want to talk about uh, the new bill signed by Governor Evers that uh, is an attempt to address the backlog and notification issues that we've seen over the years with uh, DNA testing uh, and rape kit testing. And uh, then I want to talk about the ongoing issues we see with um, bail problems, including, as we all know, the um, very low bail that was set for the individual that then bonded himself out and ended up driving his car into um, the holiday parade down in Waukesha and killing several people. But first, let's talk about this um, issue with the, the rape kit testing. And just by way of background, um, so you know how things work in Wisconsin. We have uh, just a couple of uh, centralized locations that do forensic testing of all manner of uh, evidence that gets sent to the crime lab from different uh, law enforcement agencies. And I would say that the bulk of what they receive uh, and we're talking about all different types of evidence, Is um, can be related to a case that's under investigation that hasn't been charged yet, or it has been charged, but there's no real telling whether or not a case will um, be proceeding to trial or if there's going to be a need for any kind of um, you know actual results, uh, understanding that a lot of cases do end up settling. Um, the crime lab over the years has had to, just by virtue of funding and personnel issues, has had to triage uh, what they get. And, of course, when we're talking about rape kit testing, um, I know it sounds like that should be something that should be highly prioritized. And it should. There's no doubt about that. But uh, a large quantity of what they do receive in the form of these rape kits are uh, either unknown assailants or people that are not charged or or something is going on where they have to determine when in the process of doing all the other duties that they're required to do, they will work in the process of working through this backlog of testing. And um, just so you know, a typical rape kit involves, um, don't want to get too graphic here, but it includes um, testing of bodily fluids that may have uh, been left behind. It involves, um, you know, basically looking for fibers, hair, all kinds of things that could help identify the source of, um, you know, what had happened in this situation. In a situation such as that, now in a case where they don't have a comparable sample. Um, what the crime lab is being asked to do is to develop a DNA profile without um, someone to compare it to. So in that type of situation, what has happened over the years is that when 
it's kind of an unsolved case and there is it's an unknown there's no pending case there's no arrested person um they tend to just by means of uh by operation of you know how much money can be spent and how much personnel can be devoted to such a situation um it just has to get put on the back burner because every single day the crime lab is receiving uh, all types all of the types of evidence tons of evidence of cases that are either under investigation or are going to be going to trial very soon. Um, interesting fact that occurred during this COVID time period with, um, you know, they had, they didn't have the ability to process things as quickly uh, during that time frame. And at some point, I think it was a couple of years ago, right around the time COVID started there, the crime lab came out with a policy that they, told all prosecutors in the state that they're not going to be testing for non-felony uh, possession of THC cases because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them, which if you look uh, statistically across the state, those cases tend to get resolved and not go to trial. They're not as serious, of course. And they would not be testing them unless specifically ordered by a court uh, that eventually did change as they created a huge backlog of cases during that time frame that where they just simply weren't testing for those types of cases. And, uh, well, they eventually sort of started doing that again. But the thing that triggers the testing in a case, let me just give you a typical example. Let's say a law enforcement officer gathers some evidence and they obtain suspected marijuana. They, of course, can do a field test on it. It's called a Ducanoy Levine reagent test, and that can indicate the possible presence of tetrahydrocannabinols, THC, but uh, it is not admissible because it's not specific enough to rely upon to say that it is, in fact, that substance. So what happens is that uh, substance will be packaged up by the law enforcement agency, sent off to the crime lab with a request to test it, and they'll get around to it with all the other testing that they have to do. And for many years, the, the way that the crime lab has um, allocated their resources is if there is a, if the prosecutor can indicate that there is a firm trial date that is scheduled, then they will try to meet uh, that deadline, so to speak. They will get a result done before a certain date. Now, the problem with that is that many counties uh, have procedures whereby they don't set a trial date um, at the inception of the case. Other counties have procedures where they do set a trial date, but everybody knows that it's not, you know, a firm trial date because it's the same trial date that maybe 40 other cases are sharing for that same day. And what was happening is that... Um, you know, we would have an expectation, you know, the, the parties, the people involved with the case would think, OK, you send results off to the crime lab. We'll get them back in four or five months. Then we'll know what we're doing because of the personnel funding and timing issues. Um, crime lab was simply holding off until they got notified that there was, in fact, a trial date. So. And you should know this, different counties do things differently. There's no real rule on how 
uh, any particular county has to run their trial calendars. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, there shouldn't be some sort of uniform way in which all that happens. But uh, just some examples, you know, some counties, when a defendant has an initial appearance, the judge will say, all right, well, you know, get your discovery from the DA's office, take a look at it, come back in two months, tell us what you want to do. And they don't schedule anything other than that date that comes back. Other counties might say, okay, we know that you're going to get the discovery. It'll probably come in, you know, in a week or two. Then we want you to have a pretrial conference with the DA's office. Then we're going to forecast a little while after that a potential plea hearing or change of plea hearing. And then we'll set a jury trial perhaps a week after that, the whole process being maybe three months long. Um, you know, those are a couple of examples how things can go differently in different counties. Other counties will simply just wait until the parties say, hey, we've reached a deadlock and we're not able to resolve the case. And now the only option left is to set it for trial. And that's something that can take, you know, a year or something. So, you know, part of what goes on at the crime lab is that they take all of that into account or the many variations in how things proceed. And again, statistically, the number of uh, physical items that they receive that are needed for testing, uh, a very, very small percentage of those items actually end up being needed for trial. Now, I'm not defending this practice in any way. I think that in an ideal world, every single case, they'd be able to provide scientific proof of of what exactly we're dealing with here, because my personal belief is that's something that the defense and the prosecution should have no matter what, you know, no matter what the charge is, um, because that's really part of the prosecution's burden of proof. And, you know, the long tradition in our society has been that the prosecution needs to be able to show that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt all the elements of the offense. So, you know, they're supposed to work hand in hand with prosecution, with law enforcement to try and meet these deadlines in various different ways. And that's kind of the background as to why we ended up with this problem to begin with. But we'll continue with that discussion right after these messages. And we're back. So uh, talking about this DNA and crime rape kit uh, backlog issue that's existed for years, you'll recall that when our current attorney general, Josh Call, ran for election, one of his uh, priorities that he stated was to uh, eliminate the backlog of these uh, test kits that are you know, sitting around in the crime lab. And, and what's different about those cases uh, the, compared with what I was talking about before the break, where you know we have a typical other kind of crime where some kind of evidence is gathered, they send it in for analysis, they need to get a result, and they kind of you know, have to scope out and see which ones are really going to trial. There's a lot of guesstimation that occurs in that process. They're expecting feedback from the prosecutor. Um, by the way, I've seen cases where you get a new prosecutor who isn't really familiar with this issue, and they're just sitting around kind of forever waiting for a result, not understanding why, why the crime lab isn't doing anything. Well, they are. They're just waiting for, you know, things to be put into the correct sort of priority as it is. Now, so let's compare that with one of these cases where there it's a an unknown perpetrator in an uncharged case. Um, and let me just 
add to that the fact that, if you're not aware, there was a push starting, I'd say, about 15 to, to 12 years ago, somewhere in that time frame, when we had legislation in our state that expanded uh, who will need to submit a DNA sample. And it used to be that only certain offenses called for somebody to involuntarily submit a sample of their DNA so that their DNA gets added to the great big database out there um, of known DNA profiles. Well, that turned into basically uh, a requirement that DNA provided for essentially all felony cases. Then it turned into DNA must be provided for all felony arrests, not even just convictions. And uh, that's further been expanded now to cover misdemeanors. So uh, there's this effort, and I don't know how uh, people that want their their privacy interest in their DNA profile protected feel about this. But it's a very, very large population of people, many of whom will end up not convicted of anything that even remotely resembles, you know, a, a rape, <laughs> you know, could be anything that someone gets arrested or charged for um, is required to provide a DNA sample. The goal being that if the larger the database is, the more uh, samples there are that will be potential perpetrators for unsolved crimes. So think about that. You know, you get arrested. Let's say you get falsely accused of something. You get arrested. You know, then you're ordered to provide a DNA sample. And now now you're going to be one of many, 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 many thousands of people that are essentially suspects in unsolved sexual assaults. And that's kind of by design the way it works. You might wonder why. And that's a good question because I think... Uh, on the one hand, there's an argument to be made that in order to find an unknown perpetrator, um, every single person, you know, that in the in the jurisdiction where it's even possible, crime committed or not, or arrest or not, you know, should be ordered to submit to a DNA sample, like every single person. Well, that doesn't sound very good to our our uh, sense of our system of justice and our system of fairness that we, we like to believe in. There are purportedly, you know, scientific assurances that there won't be a false match, but it does happen. I'm sure you all heard about the case that happened, oh, it was quite some time ago, but there was a lawyer who was practicing in Oregon and he ended up being taken into custody and arrested based on a DNA profile for a terrorism attack that occurred elsewhere in the country, a place he had never been and had no involvement with whatsoever. And it was a lab error. So, you know, you hear about things like that. Yes, DNA's testing is ever, ever increasingly becoming more and more accurate and more and more sensitive to what it can detect. However, because of the fact that there are still uh, human beings involved in this process, there are still people that can commit errors in what they're doing in the laboratory, especially if they're 
pushed for time and pushed for, um, you, you know, to meet some sort of deadline. You can just see the potential here because it's not necessarily a robotic automated process where there is no potential for problems. Um, so just think about that as a society. If what does that feel like if we were, if every single person who lived here was mandated to provide potential evidence of being involved in some other crime that they're not being investigated for. It just runs afoul of what we think of, of living in a free society. I will tell you though, that, um, you know, this controversy arose many, many years ago, maybe 30 years ago in the military, because there was a time in the, I want to say the early 1990s when all branches of the military made a decision that, all uh, service members will provide a DNA sample. And it was for similar purposes, but also because when someone's in the military, they can be ordered to do something, you know, and they, you can't say no because you're an American citizen or whatever, you know. No, you're in the military, you get ordered to do something, you have to do it. So uh, they were gathering DNA samples from every every military. My DNA is in the database because I was in the Air Force. So um, anybody who served in the military over the past 30 years or so, presumably has that uh, DNA profile somewhere in a very large database of DNA profiles. So I do recall I was in a prosecutor's office at the time, and there were certainly um, quite a few people that had um, a philosophical difference in why they might not want the government to have possession of their DNA. And you might recall, this is also right around the first time that they were starting to be able to successfully clone animals. And I remember the argument saying, Hey, if we can clone sheep today, who knows what they'll be able to do later. And if the government has possession of my DNA, who knows what they'll do with it? Because then they've got it forever. Right? Well, they will have it forever, <laughs> assuming that it, you know, it remains intact and they store it someplace where it can be utilized and the profiles developed in a way. But, you know, as technology gets better and better and better, I'm not sure, you know, how those profiles stand up nowadays to the ones that we receive now. But, yeah, that was the argument. Like, uh, I don't want the government to have possession of all of my genetic uh, code because who knows what they'll do with it. 100 or 200 or a 1,000 or a million years from now, okay? Um, yeah, I get it. You know, kind of an interesting argument. But in the military, the answer was, who cares? Give us your DNA. The reason that the that, that was something that happened during that time frame was because, and, and for good reason, the DN, the, there had been uh, military accidents. There have been time, you know, plane crashes. There have been times when someone was uh, you know, missing in action and uh, bodily remains were later found and, and so on. Situations where it was not easy to identify who the service member was. And this was an effort to have basically every uh, military person cataloged so that if something happens, they're involved in combat and their remains are not discovered until quite some time later, they'll, they'll be able to give the loved ones, you know, the peace of mind, as it were, that that person's remains can be returned home. Um, so that's where kind of all that started. But it was the beginning of a push, 
you know, kind of all over the country to build this DNA database to get as many, you know, samples in there as possible. And there have been cases where someone submits a DNA profile for, you know, a relatively minor incident. And eventually, when they run the profile against some sort of, uh, you know, rape kit or something, many, many years later, they'll come back with a, you know, a positive hit. We've seen those cases prosecuted. And, hey, um, you know, just it just happens. A few years ago, there was a very, very old case that had been pending for years and years and years. And there was a hit on that person's profile. That person ended up getting charged and ultimately convicted of a sexual assault that had been a cold case for, for many years. So, you know, that process works if um, that's something that we can correctly allocate resources to and uh, make it enough of a priority. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages. So I'll just follow up here uh, and kind of close the topic of uh, the bill that was signed by Governor Evers recently. And, you know, this is a step forward in terms of providing uh, victims of those sexual assault cases an ability to track where, you know, what the status of their kit is, to be notified of when it may be tested, when results are received, if ever, if ever, and so on, so, to make it so that there is a an accountability for that process, because the way it had been for many, many years is that someone would be a victim of a crime like that, and then they wouldn't hear anything. Well, we'll get back to you, you know, type thing. <laughs> and uh, so that's something to try and uh, make the process more efficient. There's also been kind of as, as a policy statement, um, a means by which to prioritize those cases. But as I've been trying to indicate here, the real problem is that many times there is not a, an actual, a known suspect. And the purpose behind having that evidence is to see if it can be compared against the millions and millions and millions of DNA profiles that are, that have been collected, um, and see if there's a match, which is a very complicated process. So, um, switching gears here, you know, a lot of uh, fuss, and you know, probably rightly so, has been made over the fact that um, the individual that plowed his car through the Waukesha parade and ended up killing a whole bunch of people had just recently been released on a very low cash bond in another case and this is one of those situations where i think when the public hears about this and there isn't really much understanding about how the process works it's very easy to monday morning quarterback this type of scenario because Knowing now what happened and then going back to before it happened and nobody knew it was going to happen, it's a difficult process to determine who out there is potentially dangerous or capable of doing something like this. On the one hand, every single person is capable of doing something like this, as we've learned Many times over the course of history, sometimes you don't know who's going to do the terrible thing that they end up doing. 
And we don't live in a society where we should assume that every single person who lives in our society is capable of committing a very heinous act. And then, you know, that's called totalitarianism or dictatorships when no citizen is trusted to have any free will or self-determination, that they are, you know, basically kept in a structured, um, squelched sort of situation. Now, you have to understand how this bail process works. And a lot of people, as we're hearing more and more input as a result of Marcy's Law, which gives victims in a um, criminal case, I guess, an enhanced voice in the process where they're consulted with, they're asked if there's anything they want to say, and so on. Um, we're, we're seeing in court uh, people chiming in on the issue of bond. And it goes all over the place. Sometimes someone will say, you know, my husband's in jail. I need him home. I want you to reduce the cash bond that we can't pay. In that scenario, they'll tend to say, well, sorry, too bad. <laughs> you know, we made that decision. And thank you for your input, madam victim. But sorry, too bad. Or someone will say, I'm afraid of this person and I want the cash bond to be so high that he can't get out and so on. Well, let's talk about cash bond. First, I want to tell you how it works in the federal system and how it works in many, many other jurisdictions. When someone's uh, taken into custody in a federal case and they're brought before a magistrate judge, there's always something called a detention hearing and it's to determine whether or not the person will be released and under what conditions they can be released. The federal system makes it kind of you know, black and white in the sense that depending on what the person's facing, if it's a crime where the maximum penalty, I mean, minimum penalty, I should say, applies and it's over a certain amount of time, then there's a presumption of detention that can only be overcome if there is compelling evidence that the court can fashion appropriate uh, limitations on the person's conduct and monitoring to make sure that they are not a flight risk and also aren't a danger to the community. When you don't have that type of statutory provision that kicks in that presumption, basically a person can be released um, on, under a variety of conditions and it very rarely includes having to post any kind of cash because cash in and of itself is kind of an outdated way of trying to get people to return to court. And, and I think that society has evolved beyond the point where that even makes any sense anymore. Um, so again, in a federal case, you might see somebody who's facing, you know, a fairly serious charge. And if it's someone who has not displayed, you know, violence in the past, has not, you know, there's all kinds of other things. If they're not colluding with gang members or whatever, um, the, the, you know, pretrial release folks that are part of the probation and parole department, in the United States Department of Corrections do everything they can, and as they should, to find a way to get the person to be released. <coughs> Excuse me. Under those circumstances, I mean, they're required by law to explore and find a way to get a person who is accused of a crime but not convicted, innocent until proven guilty, you understand, um, to be back on, you know, back at home, back at their job, 
but under supervision while the case progresses. So that presumption of innocence is something that's taken very, very seriously in the federal system. And as I said, it's a bit more mechanical in the federal system, and there's not really very much emphasis at all on money. Well, in Wisconsin, there's a huge emphasis on money, and money is the way that people get out of custody. And it's, um, you know, it's actually quite uh, interesting that if you look, if you were to look back at this particular case where this individual gets out on a relatively low bond on a different case, which again, sounded like it was somewhat serious. You have different bond recommendations that are basically a shot in the dark without much input uh, regarding the person's income, assets, all kinds of stuff um, that really isn't made part of the record. And by the way, uh, no judge or or, or court commissioner you know, on the state level would want someone to have to sell their house, you know, to get out of custody because then they don't have a place to live. But it's not supposed to be something that breaks the bank. Really, the determination is twofold. One, how much money should be posted in order for someone to be assured, so the court to be assured that they will return for their next court date. That's really the main thing. You know, here we are, we're facing charges. This is what you could be convicted of. And if so, this is how long you could end up going to prison. So we don't want you to freak out and flee and hide. So we want you to put some money in the system so that you have an incentive to come back. You add another layer to that, and the courts are supposed to determine what conditions, given the current allegation, which is a mere allegation, um, and sometimes the facts are not really known at all at that point, and to make a determination about... You know, what do we do to protect the community, given what we know right now? And it's often things like, you know, GPS monitoring, day reporting with the sheriff's department, absolute sobriety with, you know, daily or random checks, uh, geographic locations that a person isn't allowed to go to based on, you know, some particular aspect of the offense. No contact with witnesses or other alleged victims in the case. A lot of things that... Uh, you know, we have at our disposal in order to do that. So when you hear about a case where somebody had a mere, I think it was $1,500 that they had to post, they post the money and then go out and kill a bunch of people. Uh, it's very easy to go back and blame the prosecution for making a decision that turned out to have been, um, and who knows, maybe that, I don't know, maybe that's not the wrong decision at all. Maybe that was entirely appropriate. We just know that cause and effect wise, uh, people are dead because that person was able to bond out. Um, it's a little bit of a nonsensical argument in the sense that, first of all, what if it had been a million dollars bond and the person posted the million dollars and the same thing happened? Or what if the person hadn't been in custody for a separate incident for any reason? We wouldn't even be having the discussion because it wouldn't be something that you could say, aha, look, this person did something wrong. And of course, now there have been calls for um, the district attorney in Milwaukee to resign over this, who, well, even though he wasn't the one that attended the hearing. We'll talk more about this whole bail issue when we come back right after these messages. You know, it's funny. I find that as I get older, when I want to concentrate on what I'm saying, I have this tendency now to close my eyes. So 
when I, I know you can't see this when I'm on the show, but you know, when I'm right in the thick of making a, what I think is a compelling argument about something, you know, I'm sitting here in the dark because my eyes are closed. <laughs> I don't know if that's just a thing that happens when you get older. So you're not distracted by visual things. Maybe I should just get some horse blinds, you know, when I'm in court, that'll help me, you know, focus on what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, back to this whole bond issue. Um, as I said in the last segment, the federal system has a, a very strong preference against using money as part of the equation. And many states are moving towards that model where money isn't the issue. It's not like how much money can you come up with? The question is, what can we do utilizing the myriad of other resources and technology that we have that makes it so all of those conditions of, you know, can be met. You know, right now it's like super easy to, um, you know, to notify the, the border, you know, customs and borders a- agents that such and such is ordered not to leave the country and shouldn't be allowed through the airport or I know it's a little harder when you're talking about checkpoints and things like that. But look, I mean, we live in the modern world where things are computerized and there's certainly plenty that can be done uh, to make it less likely that someone's going to sneak out of the country. Um, You know, and and I think there's just this imaginary world where people skip on. Now, there are examples of that happening occasionally where somebody, you know, Flees and then they flee justice, and everybody gets all upset because they never had to face the consequences of the crime they allegedly committed. And many people tie that to the fact that if the person had posted more money, and you know, they and knowing that they're going to give up that money forever, that would be an incentive not to flee. I don't think so anymore because you know. Again, it's so arbitrary. You'll have one of these initial appearances. Ever, you know, it happens very quickly. Nobody really knows the financial circumstances of any particular defendant who's who's asking to be released. You know, in in a an accurate or you know mathematical way of being certain about that. They don't check into bank accounts. They don't look at assets a person has. You know, somebody might have a very valuable baseball card collection. They don't inventory all that stuff. And for someone, it's odd because it's, you know, they look at the number of years the person's facing, whether they have a job, whether they own a house, and then just kind of pick a number out of thin air. Um, $50,000, you know. Now, the law says that it should not be an amount set at such a level to prevent the person from getting out. So when I see cases, well, you know, let's use Rittenhouse as an example, that $2 million bond was set. You know, the court has an option in a situation like that to set no bond. What is the point of saying $2 million? Because in Rittenhouse's case, he got out. (laughs) The point of it was to keep him in, you know? And uh, when the bond was set, it was just assumed he'll never get out. That's why it was that high. And, you know, I'm being a little um, pessimistic here just because of my role in the process. I'm constantly disagreeing with decisions that are made by prosecutorial agencies about, you know, their sort of blind view on what's necessary to keep a, a person merely charged with an offense inside of a jail. Uh, and they shoot for their goal is to keep them in jail. 
The statutory goal, it's even in our constitution in our state, is that there is a presumption that someone will be released, no matter how serious the offense is. Any offense, a presumption they'll be released without having to pay bond. That's where you start. Um, we've evolved into a process whereby, and I'll tell you exactly why it happens, people are afraid to set a bond at an amount that will allow the person to post in a general sense. I'm not saying that's in every case, but let's use this Waukesha case as an example. Uh, what critics are saying, looking back at the situation, is that uh, the bond should have been set so high that the defendant couldn't post it. That's what people are thinking. And if he couldn't post it, he'd still be behind bars on a case he hasn't been convicted of. And then he wouldn't have gotten in his car and killed people in Waukesha. Um, yeah, I guess. But that's not how it's supposed to work. You're not supposed to be seeking to detain a person with financial conditions. Um, because, you know, that's the person, again, is not convicted of anything. So there's a number of things that contribute to all of this. And part of it is that... Uh, district attorney's offices, especially in some of those larger counties, Milwaukee being a prime example, will receive a lot of criticism if they are asking for bond amounts that are unachievable. Um, and if it becomes a situation where it's clear that the person will never be able to post the bond, they're sitting in custody. You understand, we also have a crisis going on here in Wisconsin where the... Um, the public defender's office cannot provide representation for every person charged with a crime who's eligible for it. And by the way, to be eligible for it, you have to be virtually completely indigent with no assets, no car, no house, no bank accounts, no savings, nothing. You've got to be more or less homeless or living with your mom, you know, to get that type of, and I'm exaggerating just a bit, but it's pretty close to that. But then there are people that can be represented by attorneys that are appointed by the court um, at county expense that they have to reimburse. There's also public defender appointments where they can ask people in the private bar to volunteer to basically take a case at a very low compensation rate. But, you know, it's a, it's a broken system because people are sitting in custody without the ability to post bond or even get a lawyer because there's a massive shortage of people who are doing the business of defense for free, you know? It, how many doctors out there are doing uh, open-heart surgery for free, you know, that don't see a lot? But that's kind of what leads to this whole issue, is that there's criticism, rightfully so, when a prosecutor asks for a sum of money that it appears that the person simply will never be able to post with the idea being they got to sit in custody while they're innocent, you know, until proven guilty. So, you know, a conscientious DA's office, or maybe not even, I shouldn't even say conscientious because um, it's just law <laughs> that it has to be considered that way. When something like this happens, and you can look back and say, gee, if it had, if something else had happened, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, you know, you can play that game going all the way back to, you know, the beginning of time. If A didn't happen, then B wouldn't have happened. Yes, of course. But 
that's not helpful. And it's going to be one of those lightning rods that, frankly, is going to result in us going backwards on that issue. And remember, our system is designed in such a way that innocent people can and are taken into custody for things they didn't do. I meet people every single day, every single day that contact my office and want my help where they have done nothing wrong, period. Yet they're being suspected of something very bad. And it's the way the world works. You know, if you think that you're immune, um, you know, I hope that you don't know anybody or talk to anybody or do anything, because if you do any of those things, you're always, it's always a potential it's a possibility that you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You've upset the wrong person and they're using the legal system to come after you or whatever. There's a lot of different ways that this can pan out. And someone who never expected to be tangled up in our legal process suddenly is and now is being treated as though they've done the thing that they're accused of. And that goes into consideration for how much money they got to come up with. And ask, let me ask you if this is fair. Let's say somebody has just a lot of money, right? Like a whole lot of money. And they're accused of a crime. They come in and they say, all right, your bond's $10,000. For that person, they're like, ah, fine, whatever. I'll just give it to you and no problem. But if you're somebody that, you know, your annual income is about that level, it, it's a big, big difference. And it makes all the difference, in fact. Freedom or not sometimes depends on how much money you have. And that is not the way our country is supposed to work. You know, we've, we have provisions that prevent excessive fine, excessive bail, all these things that are designed to keep our presumptions of fairness, our presumptions of innocence intact. So before you come to the conclusion that somebody made a grave error in the Milwaukee County DA's office, I hope you can understand the background and context. That's all the time we have for this week, but please tune in next week as you can every week, every Saturday, right here from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Lee Lefence with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.